1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are going to be in the first eight verses of the chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And while you are getting that all prepared, you can make sure you get your pens and paper ready. We're going to give some uh, notes to you, of course, as we walk through the sermon and some different scripture references that you can look up afterwards, okay? Following Jesus in a fallen world. And you look around yesterday and the world has proven once again that it has fallen. It's chaos. The most powerful weapon in the world is not man-made. I want you to hear that from me this morning. The most powerful weapon in the world in the hand of the Almighty God is His church. Do you believe that this morning? It is. The church is God's plan until He returns. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of the family of God. Amen? We can present some things to the world that no one else can present. Holiness, love, the Word of God in a compelling way to a world that needs it so much. The world is actually watching the church more than you think. The world is watching the church all the time. Matter of fact, Satan is watching the church all of the time because he knows that the church is the most drastic weapon in God's arsenal in this world. You may not believe this, but it's true. The kingdom of heaven is taking enemy territory from Satan and his demons every single day. Now, it's a different kind of warfare than we're watching on TV. It's a spiritual warfare. And this weapon is the most powerful thing, once again, in the hands of God. The weapon, once again, is the local church. And it's a healthy local church. And that's where 1 Corinthians, as we've been walking through this, is so powerful because it seems that this church in Corinth in Paul's time was not a healthy local church. Are you getting that sense as we've started to walk through this thing? Chapter after chapter of being puffed up in dysfunction. And the kind of issues that the Corinthians were facing are the ones that we face. We still face them today. The corruption of the human heart is essentially the same. And the call of God towards holiness is the same. And we need this timeless wisdom as we live through this age. Paul is addressing issues that cause the church not to be healthy. And he gives gospel solutions. Now, you may not have been keeping a tally on this, but I'm going to encourage you to keep a tally now. The gospel solves, according to Paul in this letter, 
10 main problems that a non-healthy church has. 10 problems. We've already looked at two. The first issue that Paul looked at in verses 10 of chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 21, is dividing the church over teachers, embracing the values that they had of the Roman society, which divided. Wise versus foolish, powerful versus weak, noble birth versus low and despised. Roman culture valued polished rhetoric and and regarded the message of a crucified Messiah as a joke. And the solution to that puffed up, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow these other teachers, the solution is, guess what? Christ crucified. The power and wisdom of God and it confounded the Roman values. God used church teachers to plant and to water the church. But God alone does the growth. And so you don't boast in church leaders and teachers because they're just servants. Servants of the Most High God. You boast in the Lord. The second issue was that there were Christians, Corinthian Christians, that were tolerating sin in their midst, incest in this case. And the gospel solution was is you got, you've got to live a holy life. You've got to purge the evil out. You have to purge the evil out because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He was to take on that sin, and then that sin was to be where? Gone. And we see the second issue that Paul addresses. The third one we are starting today. There were Corinthian Christians that were bringing lawsuits against one another. And the main charge we see in verse 1 of chapter 6 here, where it's really it says, do not go to law, do not go to court against each other before non-Christians. Verse 1, does any one of you, when he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And you have to understand, you have to get the feel of Paul. Paul is hearing about this stuff, and Paul thinks, this is unthinkable to Paul, that Christians would take fellow Christians to court before non-Christians. You can get a better understanding of this reasoning in verses 1 through 8 in light of the historical context of Corinth. The, The dispute, first of all, that Paul condemns regards civil law not criminal law. And I know not everyone gets that. You better get it after today. Paul calls them a grievance, calls them trivial cases, matters pertaining to this life, a dispute in verse 5, because it involves cheating and defrauding and being dishonest. So in general, criminal law is for punishing people who commit crimes that harm society. And in first century Corinth, that would have been violent offenses, treason, 
embezzlement. Civil law is for resolving private disputes about money and possessions. Inheritance, business dealings, property, that type of stuff. You guys get the difference? And usually when one person sues another in a civil case, which he's talking about here, he or she wants the court to require that person to give them money or property as payment. Now, we know that God ordained the governing authorities to enforce criminal law. We see that in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. What Paul condemns throughout this passage is a believer taking another believer to civil court. Another thing that was going on in the Roman culture at that time was that secular, non-Christian magistrates and jurists who handled first century Roman civil litigation were notoriously corrupt. Yeah, it doesn't happen at all these days. Okay, that is sarcasm. Just one of it. They accepted bribes, ruled in favor of friends, ruled in favor of those that they politically agreed with, even though it wasn't true to law. Paul himself experienced that. If you want a good read, just go over to Acts 24. Basically, the whole last part of the book of Acts is Paul in court. But Acts 24, verses 26 and 27, Paul was in jail for two years because Felix incarcerated him because he was hoping Paul would bribe him. He's like, hey, Paul, catch a clue. This is what we do in Rome. I'm going to throw you in jail. You give me some money and poof, you're out. The judicial system favored the elite. It had to do with power and influence and wealth. That was the civil side of the law. And Paul uses a play on words when he calls the secular magistrates, the unrighteous. And they unjustly enforced the civil law, and it was wicked in God's sight. And so he's, you know, this is the baseline of where we're starting today. Why in the world are you going over there to settle your disputes? And then he drops kind of some bombshells. In verses 2 and 3. I don't know if you ever sit around and think about this. But I think you should. So let's go back to verse 1. Does any of, one of you, when he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Verse 2. Just picture Paul lobbying, there, stay, okay, lobbing a grenade. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know 
this is grenade number two, that we will judge angels. How much more matters of this life? So not only did those in Corinth misunderstand their lives in this world, they misunderstand our exalted nature in Christ. And it gives a glimpse into the future that we would have, that we do have as Christians coming our way. And it's pretty interesting. It gives us insight about the role we're going to play in the future world that Christ establishes. And the logic here is given that our exalted role in the future world, with that in mind, we should be able to handle what's going on now. It's a lesser, more argument here. And the first bombshell that he threw there was that the saints are going to judge the world. My simple reaction to that is, I forget that. That's a a wow moment. This would refer to the role that Christians will have together with Christ in condemning the unbelieving world to their just fate on Judgment Day. The entire anti-God system that we read about in the book of Revelation. The anti-Christ system comes crashing down in judgment and the saints have a role in that final justice. So this entire thing is going to be reversed from what's going on in Corinth. The wicked will stand before the righteous. In that case, seems to be logic here, then why would the saints voluntarily reverse it? Stand before the wicked to receive a verdict. So the saints play a role in the eternal kingdom ruling and reigning with Christ, judging with Him, Revelation 3.21, to Him who overcomes, and that's a key to Him who overcomes because it's not a capitalized H, so it's not referring to Christ. To Him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me, capitalized, on my capitalized throne, as I overcome and sat down with my Father and His throne. Who rules with Christ? The saints. Have you ever really thought about that? And so Paul lobs this bombshell. It's like, hold it, guys. You, this church, you guys are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to be with Christ, judging the world at the final judgment, and you can't figure out how to treat each other and get along with each other and deal with each other, that's pretty sad. Once again, remember, what is the ultimate weapon, the greatest weapon on earth right now for God? It's the church. The church is a family. Christ is the head and it's powerful. We're going to be judging the world, so we should be able to figure this out. Number two, the saints will judge 
angels. Well, what? Romans 6.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. Who is Satan? He is a fallen angel. And we know from Jude verse 6, and we know from 2 Peter chapter 2, that angels will be judged. We also know from John 5.22 that Christ will be the judge. And who is sitting with Christ in judgment? We are. I'm going to love that moment. Hey, Satan, I want to show you the bottom of my foot. You ever get that sense of that? with all of the junk going on in the world today that is designed and perpetrated by Satan, isn't it nice to know that Christ will judge and because of our union with Him, we can be spoken of as judging angels in a coming day. So we got (laughs) to... This this is the way I kind of look at it, folks. We've got to roll with Christ in pulling the trigger and sending those angels that fell to hell. I'd say that's pretty powerful. And if we are considered qualified, qualified enough to sit with Christ and judge the world and judge angels, Paul is simply saying, if you are qualified enough to do that, you should be able to take care of this junk. And so he then launches in verses 4 through 8 into the remedy. Verse 4. So, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint those who are of no account in the church as judges? I say this to your shame. Is it really this way? There is not one wise man among you who will be able to pass judgment between his brothers? On the contrary... Brother is tried with brother, and that before unbelievers. He's like, eh, you guys are fighting each other in front of everyone else. Verse 7, actually then, it's already a failure. A failure for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded so you see what type of lawsuits are going on here, right? The civil lawsuits. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. So what Paul is getting at, this church is so dysfunctional 
that they're displaying to the entire city of Corinth that they do not believe that the gospel has the resources to overcome grievances. You catch that? They are displaying to the whole world Christ isn't strong enough to solve this. And he's saying that these should be resolved within the context of the church, within the context of the family. Did you know that in the United States, the court system did not used to take months and years to get through? Do you know that? Do you know that what really gunks up the court systems are actually civil lawsuits? Do you know that Supreme Court justices have said something about this? Warren Burger, in 1982, he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court at that time, said this. So this is going back a few years. I was one at the time. I'm kidding. I was one. But just keeping you awake. I want you to remember this is a chief justice of the Supreme Court who said this. One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. He added these words, remedies for personal wrongs that were once considered the responsibility of churches other than the courts and are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. This is huge. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of the church, family, and neighborhood unity. far as I understand, if I remember right, I do not believe that he was a Christian. Supreme Court Justice Scalia made this observation, and I find this interesting. He made this observation about 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. I'm grateful that some Supreme Court justices actually look at the Bible. Because the Bible has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. This is, this is Scalia. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as the elders, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversarial proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. Two different Supreme Court justices in two different generations. And what they're really both getting at is no matter who wins the lawsuit out there among Christian believers, 
all the parties, according to Paul and according to them, are already defeated spiritually because it should have never gone that far. And Paul carefully reminds the Corinthians that as God's children born into his family, they are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. This is a relationship that we must never forget. Look at Acts 6.3. Look at Romans 8.29. Look at 1 Corinthians 5.11. And the applications of this are very real to us today. I want to answer some of these because as you walk through a session like this of a sermon, you can accidentally leave holes all over the place. So let me fill in some of them. I am not a lawyer, although we have lawyers in our midst. And they can fill in the rest of the gaps. First of all, is Paul saying that Christians can never go to court? Yes or no? And if so, when and how? Well, this passage does not rule out involvement of Christians in lawsuits. It doesn't. You know why? Look at the writer. Paul was regularly in court. And he actually used the court's mechanisms and appeal process for his own defense and for the spread of the gospel. He had these famous words, I appeal to who? Caesar. He knew the law system. He knew that was a legal thing he could do as a Roman citizen. Paul wrote Romans 13 saying that we as Christians submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to the governing authorities because there is no authority except which God has established. And remember in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were wrongfully put in jail without trial, beaten publicly, thrown into a Philippian jail. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember that story at all? Go look it up in Acts 16. God sends this amazing surgical strike earthquake. All the chains fall off. Prison doors fly open. It's amazing. Philippian jailer, the jail is converted as a result of it. The prisoners, though, those two didn't run away. Paul didn't run away. He could have. And what's weird is when you read through this story, Paul's basically like, no chance. No chance at all we're going to run away. We've been beaten publicly without trial. And now you want to kind of get rid of us secretly because the next day the magistrates said, Paul, Silas, you guys can just go. Just go. You guys can just start meeting again. Oh, that was two years ago, I'm sorry. And he's like, no, nope, nope, nope. You come and escort us out. Why was he doing that? Because he was carving out religious freedom for the new church that was being planted there 
in Philippi. And so he used a legal situation to do that. So let's keep it simple here. Terms of application. Don't take another Christian to civil court. That's the simple teaching here. It is not addressing should you defend yourself against non-Christians. Different thing. But within the church, do not take another Christian to civil court. And I, I, can, I know people will go, but, 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 but. I just refer you to Paul. It's very clear. He says it. It's better to be defrauded than take a brother or sister to court. It's better to lose the money. It's better to lose the portion of the business than to litigate and press your rights and try to win the case in front of non-Christians. Because it shows no regard for your Christian witness in front of a watching pagan world. Because the pagan world goes, hey, if the Christians are doing this to each other, why in the world do I ever need to go to church? Because we can do that outside of it. See, the basic rule here then in application is in terms of involvement in the court system, it has to be your motive. Why do you want to go? Now, if your issue, like Paul and Silas, is a matter of principle concerning rights and freedoms, not just your own rights and privileges, it may be necessary to go to court. You can just as well imagine a Christian district attorney also whose whole life is spent prosecuting criminals, upholding Romans 13. Is it wrong for them to be in court? No. God's using them. There are tons of examples of Christians going to court for the benefit of the gospel, the benefit of religious freedom, like the, the, the rights of families to ed educate their children and not have to do it in public schools. That's not what's being talked about here. The right for churches to have their religious freedom to meet according to the Constitution, no matter what a local health director authority says. That is not what Paul is talking about here. The issue here in 1 Corinthians 6 is, I was wronged, I want my money back. Wah, 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 wah. Central issue. Application point. It all has to deal with our loving witness to a dying world. We are surrounded. You guys know this. We are surrounded every day by people who are without hope and without God in this world. How dare we act like them and play into the fact that there is no hope? They're dead in their transgressions and sins, according to Scripture. They need the hope of Christ. We are here to give it to them. Nothing that you would lose in a court trial that Paul is talking about here or something like that is anywhere near as important as helping someone's soul be saved in Christ. People are watching us. So let's, as a church, 
go back over the basic idea that Christ has given us. And that's this. If an outsider who is not a believer comes into our church, a meeting, a Bible study, Sunday morning worship, would they know that we are Christians because we love one another? Would they know we are Christians because of our love? Let's start there. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time.